right. Thank you, Pastor Craig. And let's thank Pastor Craig for his teaching last week. Who was here last week? Yes, thank you for, thank you for filling in last week, letting Gabe and myself to sneak away and go to a concert. So, no, uh, full disclosure, that's where we were. Um, but it's nice to have somebody who's a really good teacher that can fill in for you and, and do that. So thank you for that. Hey, welcome to Palm Sunday here at Discover. It's the, it's the kickoff of what's commonly called Holy Week. Um, a lot of people either don't understand the significance of Palm Sunday or they diminish it. It's important. Um, number one, it kicks off Holy Week, but it's more important for, for more deep reasons than that. It fulfills prophecy. And when Jesus came in, Palm Sunday is all about Jesus and his triumphant return to Jerusalem and riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, which fulfills prophecy from hundreds of years before from Zechariah 9. You can read Zechariah 9 if you want a little bit more on that. But it fulfills prophecy. Now that in itself, you might go, okay, well, that's, that's a neat trick. He, he rode in on a donkey, but maybe he knew that or, you know, Maybe it was accidental. What significance does that have? The significance is this, much the same with all prophecy. Prophecy is there so that we can know that God has always had a plan. It's not plan B. It's not what do I do now. God has never said, I don't know what to do now. Nothing has ever surprised him. And prophecy gives us those little breadcrumbs so that we know we can see all throughout Scripture from the beginning of time, God has known how everything is going to unravel. And we leave, He leaves those little nuggets all throughout Scripture so that we can say, I see that. God always knew. And more than that, He knew that thousands of years later, I was going to need some encouragement. Every time I thought, is the world out of control? Does God even know? Yes, you can read his word, and you can, he's known from the beginning. And he is sovereign, and he is in control. It gives me peace. That's one of the reasons why Palm Sunday is so significant. Now, it's significant for other reasons, which we're going to talk about. But let's get into the message here. Um, each of the four Gospels, if you read them, all agree on the events of, of what we call Palm Sunday, but it's the triumphant return of Jesus into Jerusalem. They all kind of agree on it, but I think that Matthew said it best. So I'm going to read a section through Ma of Matthew for you, and you can just kind of picture what Palm Sunday is about. As we do that, we have this, this painting, um, and I said this last service, so I'm going to say it again, I know it's not 100% biblically accurate, Okay. We don't know for sure. I don't know if there were cherubs there. We don't know that for sure. But it captures to me kind of the feeling of how I feel like that moment must have, must have worked. You got the dog down in the corner. He's like, I don't even know what's going on, but I'm excited to be here, and hopefully there's snacks. That's what my dog would be thinking. But everybody else is a mixture of curiosity, a mixture of awe, and a mixture of reverence with, with holding the palm leaves up. Some are laying down cloaks for him to walk on. Um, so it's a mixture of all those things. But one thing it isn't is as of this moment, it's no longer a secret. Jesus and his ministry. Listen while I read from you, for you from Matthew 
It's chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along with you like, if you like. I'm in the New American Standard, NASB. But listen to this account. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if any... Excuse me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately send them on. Now, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. And this is verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's that prophecy from Zechariah. Now, moving on, verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them, and he sat on the cloaks. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Now the crowds were going ahead of them, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. That explains what Palm Sunday is about. That's the event that Palm Sunday commemorates. And I say prophecy fulfilled, but really accurately, it's partial prophecy fulfilled. Because Jesus entering triumphantly, entering Jerusalem like he did, the return of the Messiah to Jerusalem is a foreshadow. It's partially fulfilling. It's a foreshadow of prophecy that is yet to come. And that is when Jesus Christ arrives triumphantly back in his earth to claim his kingdom when he comes. Now, we've got an image of that too. Well, I read from you Revelation 19. This is the next time Jesus will return. Again, not 100% maybe biblically accurate, but it helps me to see this is the other, the first one. He comes in on a donkey, humbly riding into town. Not at all what people would consider the arrival of the Messiah to be. They were picturing more like this, which will happen, but it happens later. Revelation 19.11 it says, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now that part has yet to happen, but what does happen here with Jesus returning into Jerusalem, we have the end of what's commonly called the messianic secret. If you've been following along as we go through Mark, constantly Jesus is performing miracles and then saying, don't tell anyone. Now you would think like, why wouldn't he want everyone to know? And it's simply a matter of timing. Jesus wasn't quite ready to present himself as the Messiah. What we see right here though, when he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with crowds chanting and praising him and singing Hosanna in the highest, he doesn't stop them. He doesn't tell them to quit. He doesn't sneak into Jerusalem. There's a lot of fanfare There's a lot going on, and it's no longer a secret. It can't be a secret at all. 
And just to underscore that, when Jesus arrives, what he doesn't do is just go very quietly into some place and have dinner. He immediately goes to the temple, immediately goes to the temple in Jerusalem and purifies it by kicking out all of those who are defiling it. And he does that right in full sight of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then goes one step further and continues his ministry right there. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. He's delivering people from demons. He's doing all that right there in the temple and to crowds all over the place, hailing him as the Messiah. It's not a secret anymore. And it's going to be less than a week before Jesus is put to death on the cross. Now, the people in the crowd, especially the ones who were laying down their cloaks, waving palm fronds and and singing Hosanna in the highest, hailing him as the Messiah who has arrived. The promised Messiah for thousands of years had been promised. Here he is. They probably had to be reconciling in their head. Well, first of all, he comes in on a donkey. That's not exactly what we pictured. Then he goes into the temple and starts causing a commotion by throwing out everybody who's defiling it. And they're like, okay, we're getting somewhere now. This is kind of what we thought would happen. But then less than a week later, he is arrested, he is tortured, he is crucified, and he is put to death on the cross. They had to be thinking, this is not how we thought this would go. This is not how we thought this process was going to work. So they had to question themselves, much as we question today, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't a sovereign God just have said, look, I'm just going to make this happen. People will, their eyes will be open. They will recognize my son as the Messiah. They will praise him, and away we go in the kingdom. Why didn't he do that? People have asked that question for centuries, and they ask it every day today. So we're going to look at this. Why did Jesus have to die? The title of this message is called Identity Theft. And I call it Identity Theft because... One of the things that the enemy of your soul wants to do is to steal your identity of who you are in Christ, to keep you on the sidelines, to keep you ashamed, to keep you quiet, to keep you powerless to do anything against his lies and his schemes. That's his goal. God has another plan. That's what we're going to look at. Let's look at what the death of Jesus on the cross accomplished. So here's some things. First of all, because of sin, we were far from God. God had a plan from the beginning. We were to to be heirs. We were to be made in the image of him. In fact, Genesis says that. Genesis, um, I'm sorry, um, where am I? Ephesians 2.13. Because of sin, we were far from God. I'm jumping ahead. Sneak preview. Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were previously away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus died to reconcile us and bring us near to God. That's one thing that his death accomplished. On the cross now, he accomplished that for all of eternity. We don't need a booster every year or twice a year. He accomplished that for all of eternity. 1 Peter 3.18 says that, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all time. Listen to this the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive 
in the Spirit. He gave himself for you once and for all. Now, Scripture promises us, if you've read your word at all or you've gone to a a church and heard a message pretty much at all, you have heard some version that God loves us. But sometimes it's hard to grasp that for real until you see it. Actions speak louder than words, more often than not, right? So we look to the things that our Father God did for us as verification of what Scripture says that He loves us. So we look at things like God's character, and how can we grasp God's character? We hear teaching that God is love, God is mercy, God is grace, God is perfect love, all these things, but what does that really what does that really mean to me? How can I translate that into something I can understand? Paul does that, Romans 5.8. says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't hear any amens. I just heard silence, but that should be an amen. Let me point out why. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. It doesn't say, once we got our act together, Christ died for us. It doesn't say, once we figured out what we'd done wrong, repented, turned around, and started living life right, then Jesus came and died for us. Because that's how the world works now. You get your stuff together, and then we'll talk. That's not how this worked. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That doesn't prove God's character. I don't know what does. But there are consequences for sin. There are consequences for sin. A price had to be paid because God is a just God. It can't be just free grace. He is a just God and there had to be a price. So Jesus died to prove that God was just. Romans 3 25 and 26, let me read this one for you. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There's a price to be paid, and Jesus paid it. It was a necessity to prove that God was just and righteous. Now, prior to Jesus' death, we were held captive by sin. We were held captive, literally, by the power of sin. In 1 Peter 1, 18, 19, says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus died to pay our ransom. Set us free. Now, the other thing that Jesus did in his death on the cross, Satan had wielded his powers of darkness for for eons, and he had dominion 
over the earth. And his mission, as it is now, is to steal, kill, and what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Read John 10.10 if you want to see that. That was Satan's mission then. It's Satan's mission now. Jesus died to defeat those powers of darkness. Colossians 2, 13, 14. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. See, another name for Satan is the accuser. And the accuser levels charges against you all day long. Charges that make you unsuitable and unfit for what God has for you. If those charges were true. But Jesus' death on the cross canceled the certificate of debt against us. Defeating those powers of darkness. Now, the war has already been won. But if you know anything about history, just because the war is over doesn't mean... The other side, the losing side, automatically surrenders. Oftentimes, they will fight until the bitter end. And so you have these little battles that continue to rage on. Even though the war is done, the war is a foregone conclusion, the little battles continue to rage on. And that, church, that's the battle that we fight every day. It's those little battles. The war has been won, but we continue to fight those battles. And Satan is smart, but he's got some really good weapons that he uses against us. He's got two primarily that we're talking about right now, and number one, unrepentant sin. If there's sin in your life that you have not repented of, Satan uses that. That is my permission. That's my right to come in and torment you. He's the accuser. Remember, if we have sin that we have not asked for forgiveness for, he has a right to accuse us. And he does that. He takes advantage of that, and he will accuse us of that unrepentant sin. And then the next thing he does is whispers lies to us. This is the most dangerous, I think, of all of his weapons is those whispered lies. And why? Because we'll take that whisper, and after a while, we don't even recognize it as a whisper anymore. It just sounds like our voice. And we repeat those lies to ourselves. And so we take that weapon, that whisper of lies, and it becomes just who we are. It becomes our identity. Not who God says we are. It's the lie that Satan has whispered to us. And by doing that, he'll convince you to just lay down your weapons and stop fighting. Because why fight? You're worthless anyway. Who are you to fight? So many people give up trying to be righteous, trying to do the right thing through Jesus Christ because the enemy has lied to them and convinced them that it's hopeless and they'll never be able to anyway. So they don't try. Satan will try literally to convince you that what Jesus did on the cross, you'll hear the stories. Jesus died on the cross for you. You'll hear those stories and say, "Uh, everyone but me because I'm too far gone. Maybe he died for that person, but not for me. He'll steal your identity. Now, identity theft is a serious issue in both the spiritual realm 
and on earth. Anybody here ever had their identity stolen? You know what a pain it is? Let me show you how rampant identity theft is. Look at this. This is from the Federal Trade Commission. New data shows FTC received 2.8 million fraud reports from consumers 2021 alone. Many of them, if not most of them, involve some sort of identity theft. Now, that's 2.8 million people who took the time to report it to the FTC. How many people just struggled through it or maybe they didn't even know it was happening? It's a rampant, rampant problem. Let me share some of this with you. In 2021 alone, again, 2.8 million, but there's various types of identity theft, various types of fraud, identity fraud. There's social security fraud. People will actually file for social security with your number. They'll receive your payments. You don't find out about that until you file to receive it for yourself and realize the well has gone dry. There's nothing there. Credit fraud. Somebody opens credit cards in your name, charges things in your name. Medical identity fraud. People will steal your information to go get health care and leave you holding the bill. Happens all the time. Tax fraud, tax, not, not tax fraud like filing a fake one, but return fraud where they will file a tax return in your name and receive your refund. Then when you go to file, it says, sorry, this social security number's already been used. Curious. Child identity, thro- identity fraud when thief opens accounts, bank accounts, etc., in a newborn child's name. Criminal identity fraud, when somebody commits a crime and then gives them your name, so they come knocking on your door. Now, all those things are terrible and can totally wreak havoc in your life, but they're temporary. They're earthly. And if you think that identity theft is just a modern issue because of this, think again. Satan, the father of lies, has been after your identity since before you were born. Since before you were born. And in order to stand against those lies and that attempted theft of your identity and to literally hold on to your birthright, you need to understand, first and foremost, who you were made to be and who God says you are. Because those things don't line up with who Satan says you are. Here's who God says you are. Satan tries so hard to get you to give it away. I told you by lies, those little whispers, those little lies, he'll get you to literally give away your birthright, to give away your identity. He doesn't even have to steal it most times. He'll convince you to give it away for something cheap and something temporary. Read Genesis 25 if you want to hear the story of Esau and Jacob. Esau, the firstborn son and entitled to to all the blessings that his father Isaac would give him. Esau was hungry one day. Jacob had the soup, had the stew that he was making. And Esau decided, I'm going to trade my birthright for some food because I'm hungry. He gave it away for something temporary. Read Genesis 25 if you want to hear more about that story. But we all do some version of that all the time. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But here's who God says you are. First of all, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. 
If you've ever read that and gone, well, I don't, we all look different. We all don't have the image of God. What that's talking about is the character of God. The character of God, not the physical attributes, the character of God, unconditional love, mercy, grace. Those sorts of things are how we were created to be. But that very quickly, as we know, went south when the enemy tried to steal it. Now, we were made for a purpose. This, again, is who God says you are. He made you for a purpose. You are not an accident. Has anybody here had their parents speak over them? You are an accident. Or maybe the softer version, you are a surprise. Has anybody ever said that over their own child? If you have... You need to speak the true identity over your child because you didn't know, because your parents didn't know and might have been caught by surprise. Guess what? God knew. He knew you were coming. He knew where he was going to send you. And he knew what your purpose was from before you were born. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, what? Beforehand so that we would walk in them. God had a purpose for you. There's a point for you to be here. If you've ever thought, why am I here? There is one. God has it. And he will tell you what that purpose is and he will lead you through it. But the enemy wants to steal it. Now, we were made for a purpose before we were even born, but through original sin, we were dead in our sins. Literally, we were dead in our sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this, And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. Is that hitting anybody at home? According to the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Ooh, that last part hurts. That's short. Just as the rest. You know what that means? Those who don't know Christ. Just like them. Is that hitting anybody at home? Thankfully, though, because of what Christ did, our story doesn't end there. Our story doesn't have to end in that fallen place. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings. So that means you didn't do anything to earn it. It's by grace. God saw you. He said, that is not who I called them to be. I'm going to send my son to reconcile them and to call them back to me. But Satan wants you to believe otherwise. He wants you to believe you've already done too much to be reconciled. Maybe you were at one point, but you're not anymore because that thing you did yesterday, those thoughts you're thinking now, he wants to remind you of those. I want you to be bold with me here for a minute. Who here agrees with me that this body of Christ here is a family? We're a family. Anybody agree with that? We are called, you're not here by accident. I don't care if this is the first time you've ever been here. It is not 
by accident. You are here because God calls the body of Christ together, his body, to encourage one another, to lift one another up. That's what we're here for, and that's why we gather in person. You can't do that online, church. We do that together here. So I want to invite you, I want to just ask you to be transparent. I've joked all the time, and someday, someday I'm going to do it, so don't be surprised. I'm going to put name tags by the door. And when you come in, you're going to take a name tag, and you're not going to put your name on it. What you're going to do is you're going to put together, you're going to put on there what you struggle with. You're going to put what you struggle with. I struggle with fear. I struggle with pornography. I struggle with drinking. I, not me, I'm saying. But we all, we all struggle with these things. And I've long thought that if we all put on a name tag that said what our struggle is, and we walked in here, now when you look at the person next to you, you go, you too? We all struggle. We all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we all need a Savior. There's no one here who is righteous, not one, Scripture says. So if you're looking around going, that person has it really all together. That's the person I strive to be. Guess what? They struggle just like you. And so I want to ask you to be transparent. I'm going to read some lies of the enemy. And I want you to raise your hand if Satan has whispered these lies to you and if you have believed them. I want you to do that. So just raise your hand so that we can all see we're in this together. Has Satan ever said this to you? You're pathetic, worse than everyone else. You should be ashamed to even be here. Anyone? You're a failure. You've failed too many times. There's no hope for you. Some of us are just keeping our hand up the whole time. I'll put it down when you hit something that's not me. How about this? You're a waste of space. You missed your calling. You're just waking, wasting your life. Why don't you step aside for someone more worthy? Anyone? You're weak. You're not strong enough to resist the devil. Just give in. You're hopeless. You'll never get it together. You've tried and failed too many times. This is when he speaks to me every single day. You're an imposter. You're just pretending and poorly at that to be a Christian. I hear that lie every day. How about this? You're insignificant. You don't matter at all to anyone. They wouldn't miss you if you're gone. Here's the last one on this list, and there's hundreds more. You're a victim. You're constantly being done to, and that's your lot in life. You will always be a victim. Guys, if you're believing any of those things, and we all are, I guarantee everyone, even those who didn't raise their hand, struggle with these things from time to time. If you're believing any of those things, you're settling. You're settling for less than who God says you are. You are settling for less than who God says you are. You know who God says you are and what God made you to be? Let me read you some scriptures. It's God's word on who you are. 1 Peter 2.9 but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are you living your life like that's who God says you are? Here's another one, John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. Romans 8, 16, 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. You are an heir. 1 John 5, 4 and 5, for whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes what? Just the little things? Overcomes the world. You know how big the world is? You know how much junk is out in the world? Guess what? You are an overcomer because Christ says you are. That's what the word of God says. Whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Oh, so I don't have to be rich or smart or big and strong. I don't have to be any of those things. I just have to have faith in Jesus? Yes. Verse 5, who is the one who overcomes the world? He overcame the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's you. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, you are an overcomer. That's what he says you are. You're not a victim. You're not worthless. You're not an imposter but you have overcome the world. All those scriptures together, I think the Apostle Paul sums it up really, really nicely in this section he wrote to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 6. Let me read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he favored us in the beloved. That ties it up in a nice, neat bow. That's who you are. And if you struggle believing that all these scriptures apply to you, then you're in danger of willfully surrendering your identity for something temporary and for a lie. That's identity theft. That's who God says you are. And if you don't grasp that and say, that's who I am and I am going to hang on to that and I'm going to live my life because that's who he says I am, then you're in danger of just giving it up. Church, we need to fight for it because the enemy is fighting to take it away from us. So how can your true identity be recovered? It can be done, and it's not through life lock. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, and the process is straightforward. Number one, we repent. We repent of those things that we have done that defile us, that take us away from who God said that we were, that those things we do in our life that don't reflect who God made us to be, we repent of those. We start there. Then we receive the free gift through Jesus. Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We just accept that. We accept redemption. We accept the grace. And then the last one, we refuse to accept anything less than a life that reflects who we truly are. 
here's maybe the kicker here. That's what makes you a target. We refuse to live anything less than the life that reflects who Christ says we are, and we invite others into that life. Ooh, the enemy hates that. He hates that. If you want to just be saved and live the abundant life over here by yourself, eh, I don't love it, but okay. You start inviting people into that abundant life, now he's got a real problem, and he will not stop. He will never give up. But through Christ, we are promised that we are victorious. We are overcomers. Church, that's who you are. Hang on to that. Hang on to that. Paul again wrote to the Romans 8, 35 to 39, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our worst enemy is ourselves giving it up. The love of God, the love of God, it says we cannot be separated. None of these things can separate us from the love of God. The love of God is so perfectly on display in this one obscure scripture. Let me share it with you. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life eternal, abundant life. That's, that's the gift from God. He gave his only son so that we could have that. And the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, thankfully, is not the end of the story. It is just the beginning. And for that, we should celebrate. Amen? Amen. Uh, let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is eternal. Your word is, is there for us to see and to know and to hear and to live who you say we are. We are not at the whim of, of a lie. We can test the spirits. We can test the lies against what your spirit testifies to us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. But Father, I repent of anything that I have done that doesn't walk in that life of who you created me to be. Of allowing my identity be, to be stolen or to, worse yet, give it away for something cheap and temporary. Father, I repent of those things and I thank you that through Jesus, I am redeemed anew every single day. Every day, no matter how many times I fail, you are there the blood of Christ, to redeem me. And I thank you that, I thank you that we are not blown about by the wind, wandering around without any clue who we are or why we're here. You have given us purpose. You have given us identity. And that identity is as a reflection of your son, Christ Jesus, on this earth. Father, I praise you for that. Help me to walk in boldness, and the authenticity of what that means. 
Let me not live a lie. Let me not pretend one thing and live another. Let me truly walk in who you say I am. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together right now. If you're out there online, grab your supplies here in-house. At the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers. Crackers are gluten-free. If you want to do that, you could serve yourself there. <coughs> Excuse me. Pastor Gabe and myself will be up here. We will serve you. We have wine uh, and the bread and crackers, and we can serve you if you just line up right here. But let's take communion together as a celebration of who Christ is and what he did for us. It's not just remember what he did. It's through that, through his sacrifice on the cross, that we can stand against all of the lies of the enemy. We can walk in the identity of who God says that we are. And we can be victorious about anything that this world throws at us. That's through the blood of Christ. And every time we take communion together, we are celebrating and we say yes. Who you said I am, Jesus, the sacrifice that you did on the cross means something. It is not just a cool historical fact. You did that for me. And I acknowledge that and I thank you for that every time I take communion. And let's do that together. So feel free to move about and worship. If you need to sit in your seats and just, and just pray for a little while, then just do that. Take your time. In the back, we have people with lanyards that say prayer. Maybe you need somebody to pray along with you and to help you over that hurdle. Sometimes that hurdle looks bigger than it is. Have someone pray with you. If you need prayer for anything, they would be happy to do that. I would be happy to do that. And then after service, don't forget, if you have questions about the new potential building, please ask it. We're going to be out there, and I want to answer all of your questions. It is such a God thing. It is such a way to just point and say, look at the amazing thing God has done. And we get to do that every day in our lives. And we have come so far and everything is ahead of us. Let's live it in victory in Christ. Amen? Thank you, guys.